Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity that we have to come into your house on this Sabbath to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray a special blessing upon this worship service as we open the word of God that you would speak to our hearts. May Jesus be uplifted and Christ be seen. For we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. On the screen, I have a picture, or a picture is coming, of a monument that you can find in Berlin, Germany. And it's a monument, a stack of 40 books, or it's a, it's a stack of 17 books that is 40 feet tall. And on the spine of these books are various German authors, writers, and poets like... Immanuel Kant, Martin Luther, George Heigl. And this monument is not so much pointing out that these are renowned authors, but this is actually a monument to a gentleman by the name of Johannes Gutenberg. I'm sure you remember his name in, from elementary school or high school history. Johannes Gutenberg was responsible for the modern printing press. He invented movable type, and it was as a result of this gentleman, Gutenberg's invention, that many historians believe that Gutenberg is the most influential person of the last millennium. You're wondering, how is this possible? Well, prior to this, uh, the copying of books was only done through uh, manuscripts, and as a result of this invention, Gutenberg was responsible for several revolutions that took place afterwards. Historians and scholars believe that the impact of Gutenberg led to the foundation of these different movements and revolutions, the Renaissance, the Reformation, the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution and today's knowledge-based economy can all be attributed to this man's invention. Quite an impact, might you say. Time Life, the magazine, named Gutenberg the most influential person of the last thousand years. Can you believe that? One person does an invention and the landscape of human history is dramatically altered just because of what this man did. Now, some time ago, Albert Einstein was on the cover of Time magazine, and he was the person of the century. Here, Gutenberg is the person of the last millennium, the last 1,000 years, and I would argue today that your life and mine would be dramatically different if the printing press had not been invented. We would probably not have projectors, we would not have cell phones, we would not have a car. All of the modern inventions came as a result of this man's invention. Now today I want to invite you to turn with me in your bulletin or open your bulletin and take out your study guide. We're beginning a new two-part series today. It should be in your bulletin. If you don't have one, raise your hand. Our ushers are ready in the back to give you a study guide. This is a brief outline of today's study and presentation. Raise your hand, and you will get all of the quotations and the study, the outline of today's presentation today. I would venture this morning to 
contend that there is an individual that is not only the greatest individual of the last millennium, but the greatest individual in human history since the beginning of time. And scholars, whether skeptics, atheists, agnostic, or believers alike, have to agree that Jesus Christ is in the conversation when it comes to the greatest influential person, not of the last thousand years, but the greatest influential person in human history. And I have this quote here on the screen, The Impact of Jesus. You can follow along in your study guide. I've put and highlighted the fill in the blank that you can go through as you follow through today's presentation. In his five-volume work on world history, historian and religious skeptic H.G. Wells, this individual does not believe in God, found himself devoting the most space to Jesus Christ. He wrote, A historian like myself cannot portray the progress of humanity honestly without giving Jesus of Nazareth the foremost place. Here's an agnostic, a person that doesn't even believe in God, and he's looking down through the annals of time at every influential individual, and he said, at number one, the foremost place is a man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, whether you believe in God or not, it cannot be denied that the life of Jesus has made significant impact in human history, so much so Do you know the first book that was printed on Gutenberg's press? It was the Bible. It was the Bible. Another quotation, all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, and all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned, put together have not affected the life of man upon the earth as powerfully as that one solitary life, Jesus Christ. Jesus changed human history. I want you to think about his life for a moment. He only lived a little over 30 years, ministered for three and a half years, and when he died on the cross and was resurrected on the third day and ascended back to heaven, according to the Bible, our human history was dramatically altered to the place where you have before Christ and after Christ. Jesus changed the landscape of human history. And I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles as we look at the ministry of Jesus Christ here this morning in our Scripture reading, Mark chapter 1 and verse 32 and 33. Mark chapter 1, verse 32 and 33, if you're using the church Bible, it is on 1552. Mark chapter 1, verses 32 through 33. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city gathered together at the door. This is at the beginning of Christ's ministry. He is healing individuals so much so that the word has gotten out and people are flocking to him from all over the countryside to find physical and spiritual healing. The next verse I have on the screen, Mark chapter 1, verse 34. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases. The person that had cancer came to Jesus. He healed them. The person that was a paralytic came to Jesus, he healed them. The person with Ebola came to Jesus, he healed them. The person with AIDS came to Jesus, he healed them. It was national news. Not only that, but Jesus 
cast out demons. There were people that were demon-possessed. Jesus cast out the demons. So Jesus had a twofold ministry. It was not just about physical healing. He also healed the spirit, the soul. The spiritual faculties as well, Jesus healed. He believed in a holistic approach to humanity to bring us back to where Adam was. He did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. So in verse 34, we have the public persona of Jesus. We have the image, the healer, the teacher, the great man that changed the landscape of human history. Now what about his private life? We live in an age where individuals carefully manicure their public life to the place where you have a person that's responsible for PR. Now, many times you have an individual that is all about the externals, but their private life is falling apart. And you find that in verse 35, this is a window into the private life. So in verse 35, you have the private life. The previous verse, you have the public life. Now, in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Now, in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out to a solitary place, and there he prayed. I want to pause a few moments as we look at this passage. Now, what time of the day was this? How many of you are morning people? Okay. Oh, you got a few here. All right. I'm naturally not a morning person, although I'm starting to develop into one. I could not understand how my dad would arise at 4 a.m. every single day, but I'm finding the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, if you know what I'm saying. I'm finding that I'm becoming more, more like my dad as I, get, as I get older. But this was in the morning. Now, just so that Mark could tell us that this was not late in the morning, it says, having risen, what? A long while before daylight. In other words, this was not 9 a.m., friends. This was not Sunday morning in America when people crawl out of bed at 9 or 10 a.m. This is at a time that when we mention the time period, our hearts struggle at the very thought. Now, some scholars believe that when it says in the morning, This is attributed to the first watch, the time period between 3 to 6 a.m. That is what scholars believe the Greek equivalent is here. Now, just so that we understand, all right, so 3 to 6 a.m., that's the morning, having risen a long while before daylight. So it tells us that this is not at the latter part of the morning period. This is at the earlier part. So Jesus was arising at a time very very early in the morning. He went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. I want to talk a little bit more about the prayer life of Jesus. You can fill it out in your study guide. We've, given, we've been given in Scripture a window into what Jesus was like in his private prayer life. Matthew chapter 14, verse 23, you can fill it out in your study guide. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to, what does it say? To pray. Mark, Luke chapter 9, verse 28, about the eighth day, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up on the mountain to pray. So you see that Jesus not only prayed alone, he also prayed with other individuals, in this case, Peter, James, and John. We move on. 
Luke chapter 6, verse 12, the prayer life of Jesus. It was at this time that he went off to a mountain to pray, and he spent the what? The whole night in prayer to God. I can say that there have been very few times in my life when I've done this. One time was during an evangelistic series when I was a Bible worker, and I remember struggling through the night to pray for these individuals. I was praying all night. I fell asleep. These individuals left me in the room. I woke up startled and ran out of the room trying to find these individuals that were praying with me. It is not easy, but here Jesus spends the entire night in prayer. Now, there's two times in the Bible when Jesus spends the entire night in prayer. One is right before choosing his 12 disciples. Important event, he prays all night. The other time is right before the cross, Jesus prays all night in Gethsemane. Luke chapter 5, verse 16, but Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. You can see that Jesus had a very powerful public life, but his private life, I would argue, was even more powerful. Jesus was an individual that believed in prayer. Jesus was a person that would many times during his public ministry steal apart and go and pray for many hours, sometimes all night, praying for the thriving of the gospel on planet earth. Now, here's my thesis. You can fill it out. The thesis, which is the point of today's message. Now, if you forget everything else, I hope you remember this. Every spiritual revolution can be traced to a person of prayer. Let me read that again. Every spiritual revolution can be traced to a person of prayer. I've looked at every type of revival, and I've seen this pattern over and over again, that at the center of every spiritual awakening, reformation, or revolution, you have an individual that is spending significant time on their knees in prayer. Every spiritual revolution can be linked to a person that is on their knees praying. You cannot get away from this reality. Jesus, impact, praying significantly. I have a quotation. It would be of no surprise if a study of secret causes were undertaken to find that in every golden era in human history proceeds from the devotion and righteous passion of some single individual. There are no bona fide mass movements. It only looks that way. At the center of the column, there is always one man or woman who knows God and knows where he is going. This tells us that when you see a mass movement, a revolution, a reformation, it can be traced down many times to one person that is on their knees wrestling with God, asking him to intervene in a powerful and profound way. Every spiritual revolution can be linked to a person of prayer. I think of Martin Luther. In 1517, he nails the 95 Thesis on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. The 95 Thesis was a protest to what was happening in the Vatican. The Vatican came up with a program because they wanted to sell indulgences, which was essentially payment for sins, past and future. You wanted to sin in the future, you just gave some money and you could buy your forgiveness. 
They were using this to subsidize and pay for St. Peter's Basilica there in Rome. And Martin Luther heard about indulgences because Tetzel came selling these indulgences. And as a result of this, Martin Luther nails the 95 Thesis on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. Now, normally, this would not have made any sort of impact, but Gutenberg, a few years before, had invented movable-type printing presses. And as a result of this, someone got a copy of the 95 Thesis, and they put it through a printing press. And in one year, 300,000 copies of Martin Luther's protest were printed off and scattered all over Europe, and hence was born the Protestant Reformation. One man makes impact, and many historians, non-believers, believe that it was the Protestant Reformation that gave birth to the Enlightenment period. And the Enlightenment period gave birth to the scientific revolutions of today. The Protestant Reformation came down to one single individual that had the audacity to stand up for his convictions. Impact. And yet we have one Christian writer documenting the events of the Reformation, and it traces it down to this element. Great Controversy, page 210, found in your study guide. From the secret place of prayer came the power that shook the world in the great reformation. Luther did not fail to devote how many hours? Three hours each day to prayer, and these hours were taken from that portion of day most favorable to study. Here's a person on his knees praying to God, and he makes impact. He changes the world, and your life and mine have been dramatically altered because of the Protestant Reformation. I think of Ahab and Jezebel. One day I want to preach a sermon on this. This is during a time of national apostasy there in Israel. Ahab, the state, marries Jezebel, who is the leader in Baal false worship. And the union of church and state happens, and what follows is a period of national apostasy. For three and a half years, there is no rain in Israel. And Elijah stands up, and you know the story in the book of Kings. He stands up on Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal, and he calls fire down from heaven, and there is a national revival that happens as a result. Elijah made national impact. And as a result, we see that Elijah was a human being James chapter 5, verse 17, even as we are, he prayed earnestly. James chapter 5, verse 17. There you have it. You can see that in Elijah's life, he was an individual of prayer. We come to Joshua. Joshua is battling in Canaan, and he sees that if the sun goes down, he's not going to be able to finish out his enemies, and he calls out to the heavens, and he says this statement, Son, stand still. And as a result of that pronouncement, the sun stands still, according to the Bible, for the entire day. There is a 24-hour period of daylight, 
and the enemies of God are vanquished. We have another statement from Patriarchs and Prophets, 509, telling us where the source of this power was. The man who commanded, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Agilon, the, the man who for hours lay prostrate upon the earth in prayer in the camp of Gilgal, the man of prayer, or the men of prayer, are the men of, what does it say? The men of prayer are the men of power. You can see it over and over again that in every spiritual revolution, it can be linked to a person of prayer. As we talk about this notion of prayer, I want us to look at a quotation from E.M. Bounds, and he talks a little bit about the science of how prayer works. He says, God shapes the world by prayer. Prayer is God's singular condition to move ahead in his son's kingdom. Therefore, the believer who is most highly skilled in prayer will do the most for God. And the secret of success in Christ's kingdom is the ability to pray. Now, I've often thought to myself, you know, what is the point of praying if God already wants to intervene? He already wants to answer our prayers. What is the point of spending significant time on our knees? I've often thought to myself, why doesn't God just intervene in a significant way? Now, we know according to the Bible that nothing we can do can earn our salvation. I don't believe that God is up in heaven with a timer clocking us to see how many hours or how many minutes we spend on our knees and says, oh, you, David shouldn't have spent an hour on his knees. Click, now I'm going to open the windows of heaven. This is not meritorious works we're talking about. Now, what is it? I sincerely believe that prayer does not change God. In reality, what prayer does is that it changes us. What I found in my Christian experience is that if I do not spend regular time in prayer, I get to the place where I think, you know, I got this. I don't really need any help. I feel pretty self-confident. But the very posture of prayer, and I think that all of us in our own Christian experience can look back to a time when we cried out to God for help. You were at the end of your rope, you had no way out, you had no alternative, you had no solution, and you say, Lord, help me. The very fact that we pray indicates that we need help. The very posture of prayer is a posture of dependence. Why would we pray if we have everything together? But prayer puts us in a position where we can receive God. And in the great controversy between Christ and Satan, between good and evil, between the forces of light and darkness, there is this controversy and the ground rules. Yes, there are rules in the great controversy. And one of the rules in the great controversy is that your free will cannot be forced. Your freedom of choice cannot be overridden. No one can choose for you. Furthermore, the devil... Satan cannot force you into sin. You must consent. God cannot force you to become a Christian. You must consent. This is the power of what happens. And when you pray, Lord Jesus, please come into my heart, that is the most powerful prayer that you can ever pray. Because what you have just done 
In that illustration, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man open the door, I will come in to him. That is the picture. God doesn't barge in through the door. He's knocking on the door. So the most powerful thing you can do is give access. Give consent. Allow God to intervene. And when you pray, you are giving God access, permission to have control in your life. That is the posture of prayer. Now, another dynamic in the great controversy, we have something called intercessory prayer, which simply means that you pray for another individual. Now, when you pray for another individual, I believe that the Bible points out that you can actually have faith for someone else. Remember the story of the paralytic that was brought to Jesus. They tore down a roof to bring their friend to Jesus, and the Bible tells us in the book of Mark, when Jesus saw their faith, in other words, he saw the faith of the friends that brought this person to Jesus, he healed the man, which means that when you pray to God for your son or daughter or for your husband or for your wife to intervene in a powerful and profound way, that God answers that prayer not because they asked, but because you asked. That is the power of intercessory prayer. Because when God starts to intervene in the life of that individual, I believe that the devil starts to protest and says, what are you doing? He didn't ask for it. How can you intervene? You're overriding the rules in the great controversy. He never asked. He never gave you permission. And Jesus says to the devil, the Lord rebuked you because he didn't ask. Someone else asked. That's why I'm intervening. This is a profound perspective that the Bible gives us in the great controversy between Christ and Satan, that when you pray for somebody else, you are giving God access to intervene to mold circumstances and events in that person's life so that they can have the opportunity to open their hearts to God. This is the power of intercessory prayer. You're giving God the right to intervene. A few other quotations. By your fervent prayers of faith, you can move the arm that moves the world. By your prayers of faith, you can move the arm that moves the world. Now, just before that, in the quotes on prayer, I want to read this in your study guide. This is from Steps to Christ, page 94 through 95. I know it's a little bit of a longer paragraph. There are two paragraphs. I want to read it through so that you can follow along and see the significance of why prayer is so important for the Christian. Our Heavenly Father waits to bestow upon us the fullness of His blessing. It is our privilege to drink largely at the fountain of boundless love. What a wonder it is that we pray so little. God is ready and willing to hear the sincere prayer of the humblest of His children. And yet there is much manifest reluctance on our part to make our wants known to God. What can the angels of heaven think of poor, helpless human beings who are subject to temptation when God's heart of infinite love yearns toward them, ready to give them more than they can ask or think, and yet they pray so little and have so little faith? The angels love to bow before God. They love to be near Him. They regard communion with God as their highest joy, and yet the children of earth who need so much help that God can only give, seems satisfied to walk without the light of His Spirit and the companionship of His presence. Listen to this. The darkness of the evil one encloses those who neglect to pray. 
The whispered temptations of the enemy entice them to sin, and it is all because they do not make it use of the privileges that God has given them in the divine appointment of prayer. Why should the sons and daughters of God be reluctant to pray when prayer is the key in the hand of faith to unlock heaven's storehouse, where treasured the boundless resources of omnipotence? Without unceasing prayer and diligent watching, we are in danger of growing careless and deviating from the right path. The adversary seeks continually to obstruct the way to the mercy seat, and we may be by earnest supplication and faith obtain grace and power to resist temptation. It says the darkness of the evil one encircles those who neglect to pray. The very act of prayer is a posture of dependence, allowing God to intervene in the life of the individual. And our final quote there in the quotations on prayer, prayer is the key in the hand of faith to unlock heaven's storehouse. Now, I think of our church, it's hard to believe that this February in 2015, I will have been here seven years. Can you believe that? Where has that time gone? I, we came here as a newlywed, and uh, we've experienced the majority of our married life in this church, and we've been so thankful to this church, the love and the hospitality that we have. Uh, we just praise God for the opportunity that we have to minister here. About two years into our ministry here at the University Church, I was sitting at a table just across the hall with some church members, and the church members really had a desire to pray, and they, they challenged me, and they said, Pastor, we need to spend time in prayer. No, Pastor, we need to spend time in sacrificial prayer. And I had an idea, and I looked at them, and I said, uh, do, do you want to spend time in prayer? They said, yes, Pastor. You want to spend time in sacrificial prayer? I mean, real sacrificial prayer. And they said, yes, Pastor, this is what we want to do. And, and so I looked at them and said, okay, this Sunday morning at 4 a.m., I'm going to be here in the church. You come and join me. And you should have seen the look on their faces. I mean, their, their eyes just got wide. And uh, they had challenged me. And so I said, look, let's be there. I'll, I'll be there. And, and uh, I showed up. On Sunday morning, now mind you, in order to get here at 4, I need to get up at 3. And my Sabbaths, my Saturdays are long. Many times I go to bed at midnight. So, so I got up by faith, and I was sincerely thinking in the back of my mind that this might be a true solitary time period of prayer because no one would be here. Well, I got up, you know, washed my face, showed up here, and believe it or not, the saints had come. 4 a.m., and I thought to myself, we'll see how long this lasts, all right? So we started to pray. We prayed for two hours. We were asking the Lord to pour out His Spirit, asking for personal and corporate revival, asking for the book of Acts to happen in our generation here at the University Church, and that's what we did. We eventually moved the time period to seven, all right? We did it for about six months, and then we moved it down. But we have continued in this tradition. We have our prayer meeting on Sunday morning from 7 to 9, and we sing, and we uh, praise God, we ask for prayer requests, and then we spend the, majority of our, spend the majority of our time praying for every prayer request that you turn in, in addition to the other ones. Now, what we have experienced has been quite fascinating, because in the five years, there was also something else that took place, was the greatest 
financial meltdown since the Great Depression, the Great Recession. You remember that. That happened in 2007, 2008. And since then, you know, we live, I mean, not since then, but, you know, we all live here in Michigan. And I don't need to go into detail about that, but this is not a thriving economy in Michigan. Detroit was, was hit particularly hard as a result of the Great Recession. And so we started to pray, and at that time, our church budget was thousands of dollars in the red. Thousands. I mean, it was just plummeting. The Great Recession happened, and our members were hit hard, and our church budget just just fell like a rock. And I looked at it, and I don't have any financial background, and I said, oh, Lord, help me. You know, I don't have a Harvard MBA. I'm just a pastor. I said, Lord, help us. And so we slashed all our budgets, and then we started praying. And as we started praying, you remember the quote, prayer is the key in the hand of faith that unlocks what? Heaven's storehouse. And we said, Lord, you're rich. I said, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. Please help us. And as we prayed, we saw the numbers start to creep back up. I said, oh, praise God. It started to creep back up. And I want to tell you, by the grace of God, ever since we've started praying that every single year, at the end of our fiscal year, we have ended our financial statements in the surplus. The surplus. I can't explain it. Our treasurer tells me, I don't even know where these money is coming from. I don't even know these people. That's what she told me. And we ended in the surplus, but furthermore, we had funding that came into our church to hire full-time staff. We hired Daniel Jean-Francois. Now, that's not hired by the conference. That comes straight out of this church. We hired Daniel Jean-Francois. Then we hired a web pastor. People are like, what's a web pastor? You know? Well, we have an online presence. Uh, Our sermon downloads, praise the Lord, we have about 1,000 sermon downloads through our podcast every single week here at the University Church. And so we have an online congregation, and we, we hired Bryant Maroney, and then he, he went to North Carolina, and now our web pastor is, is Sam Natarajan. So we have a web pastor. Not only that, we have a, a Bible worker. And so pastors, they would approach me at our ministerial meetings, and they say, pa- uh, David, uh, how many churches do you have? I said, I have one. And, he's, and they're like, how come you have so many people on your staff? I just, I just don't know. I said, well, it's not the conference that's, that's supporting this. They, they don't have the money to support this. I said, this all comes out of local church. And that's what's, that's what's happened in the last five years as a result of, of, of just praying. We also had another problem. We had the house next door. Some of you remember. We, had, we still have the house next door, but we were in a rental agreement because the house came with the church, we bought it, and then we rented it out to individuals at Michigan State University. And when I began my ministry here, the church had been for a couple decades selling or renting the house to individuals. And I want to tell you that since I came to this church, we had a few ungodly elements move into the house next door. There was drunkenness, debauchery, licentiousness, every type of thing that would happen. Believe you me, when there was football games, there would be all kinds of activity happening over there, beer cans coming over the fence. And I said, oh, Lord, what is going on? We have a church property, and there is debauchery happening inside the church property. And I said, if, if there's nothing else, Lord, please help us to use this house for ministry. And I said, I don't know how to do it. I said, we cannot afford to, to turn the house into ministry because we were using the rent to pay off our bills. This is where we were. 
And I said, there's no way out. So we prayed. And miracle of miracles happened. The Michigan conference suddenly had money. And they bought, you know? I mean, I don't mean it that way. This is going live. No, they, they have money. They had money for this project. All right, they had money. Woo, I'm going to be in trouble. All right, all right. If I'm not here next week, you know, all right. So, miracle of miracles happened, and the Michigan Conference bought the house next door. They bought the house, made it the headquarters of campus ministry. We, in turn, used the money for our renovations here. We have air conditioning. There are very few churches in Michigan that have air conditioning. We renovated our kitchen. We put money into our streaming. We converted a room into Bible University. We renovated our bathrooms. And these are the miracles that just happened. But even more than that, we've had baptisms here that have been miracle baptisms. I told you last week there was an atheist student from China at a bus stop on Grand River. Carla, one of our students, approaches her, asks her if she's interested in Bible studies, gives her a card. She responds. This is an atheist. She emails him, yeah, I want Bible studies. She comes to this church. Now, this was last August. She starts taking Bible studies. And then in February of this year, she stands up right here at this podium and professes her love for Jesus Christ, an atheist, her belief in Jesus, and gets baptized into this baptismal tank right here. And she went from the bus stop to baptism in seven months. Can you say amen? Amen. Another individual I talked about last week, jazz musician at Michigan State University, starts taking Bible studies. He comes to this church, gets baptized, walks away from a $40,000 annual scholarship because he feels God calling him to be a pastor. And right now, after being baptized, he is at Southern University studying for the ministry. That is what's happening at the university church. And I want to tell you that God has great things in store. This is just the beginning. I'm like, Lord, you're starting to crack the windows of heaven open. And right now, I just want you to open it even more. And every spiritual revolution begins with someone on their knees. This is how it happens. Why not? Why can't we turn this city upside down for Jesus Christ? Amen? Why can't the bars in this city be closed and the drunkenness and the debauchery and the sin and the licentiousness cease because hearts are being won to Jesus Christ? It can happen today because the God of the Bible is the God of today. We often ask ourselves, what can I do? I'm just one person. We look at our world. I look at East Lansing, and I'm just like, oh, Lord, what what can we do? I'm just one person. I don't have the resources. I don't have the ability. I don't have the talent. And I want to close with this quotation from the book Desire of Ages, page 250. There is no limit. There is no limit to the usefulness of those who put self to one side and make room for the working of the Holy Spirit upon their hearts and lives wholly consecrated to God. No limit. Martin Luther, 
one person. The men of the Bible, Joshua, one person. Elijah, one person. And by God's grace, you can be the one person that changes and alters and impacts the scope of human history for Jesus Christ. Every spiritual revolution begins with a person of prayer. I want to invite you to stand with me as we prepare to close. Every head bowed and eyes closed, I make this appeal every single week because we want to give the opportunity for you to respond to the call of the Holy Spirit. And my appeal is this. If you have not accepted Jesus Christ fully as your Savior, if you were to die tonight, you don't know if you would be saved. You can't answer that question with an affirmative yes. And today you want to know that you are saved and you want to invite Jesus Christ into your heart of hearts. I want to invite you to raise your hand just quickly and say, Lord Jesus, God bless you. God bless you. Is there someone else that wants to say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. God bless you. Is there someone else that wants to say, Lord Jesus, God bless you over here. Someone else that says, Lord Jesus, I want to invite you to my heart. I want to give you access. This is the most important decision that you can ever make. Allowing Jesus to have access into your heart. He's not going to break the door down. You have to let him in. And you want to say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart today. Is there someone else that says, Lord, come into my heart. God bless you. God bless you. Eternity is at stake. No one can make this decision for you. Don't listen to the devil that tells you that you're too sinful to come to Jesus because that's a lie. Don't listen to the devil that tells you you've done too much or that sin is too heinous, that it cannot be forgiven. And you want to say, devil, the Lord rebukes you. And you want to say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Is there someone else today that says, I want God bless you in the back, that wants to say, I want to invite Jesus into my heart. My second appeal is this. Today, as you've heard this message, as you've seen the example of the men and individuals of the Bible that have committed their life to prayer, and you feel convicted to pray for a specific purpose, you feel called to spend time on on your knees in prayer, asking God to intervene, but you need help. You want to say, Lord, help me in my prayer life. Help me to spend more time with Jesus in prayer because prayer is the breath of the soul. It is a secret of spiritual power. And you want to say, Lord, I have the desire to pray. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Help me because I can't help myself. And you want to say, Lord, help me in my prayer life. I want to invite you to come forward for special prayer. You want to say, Lord Jesus, God bless you. There's someone else that wants to say, help me in my prayer life, in my personal morning devotions. I want to invite you to come forward this morning asking God to help you because the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Help me in my prayer life. Help me to turn off the television. Help me to spend less time on the internet. Help me to spend less time on foolish things of this world and spend more time in the audience with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen. Amen. I believe that something is happening at the University Church. I believe God is about to outpour, pour out His Holy Spirit as never before, and it begins with a group of individuals that are committed to praying for asking God to pour out His Holy Spirit as never before. I want to invite you to bow your heads with me as we prepare to pray at this time. Father in heaven, 
We thank you for the divine example of Jesus. We thank you that even though Jesus had a powerful public life, he had even a more powerful private life. I pray this morning that you would help us. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Lord, we desire to pray like the disciples, but we are weak. Help us, Lord. Create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us. Help us to recognize that we serve a God that cannot fail. We serve a God that knows no impossibility. We serve a God that can do anything. And today we ask that you would change our hearts. Mold us and make us to be more like you. Help us in our prayer life, Lord. I pray for the individuals that have come forward this morning recognizing their need of spending more time with you, their need of being like Jesus. And I pray for all of us. I pray for myself that you would help us in our prayer life. Help us to be individuals that look forward to spending time with you, that we would talk to you as we would talk to our friend because Jesus is the ultimate friend of friends. And today, Lord, we pray that as a result of you answering our humble prayers, that there will be a revival that would spark in the university church. There will be a revival in our families, that husbands and wives would be revived in their marriage, that parents and children would be revived in their relationship, that any estrangement would be, would be relieved and there would be harmony in the home and harmony in this church, and that individuals in this community would take note that we are your disciples because of our love for each other. And through this witness of reflecting the character of Jesus, we praise, pray for transformation in the university church, transformation at Michigan State University, and transformation in the world. And let it begin with me. Let it begin with us. Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be poured out. We pray for Jesus to come in the clouds of glory. And we pray that when you come, that we'll be found faithful by your grace. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.